This is Spectrum Stories, the podcast for Spectrum, the leading source for news and expert opinion on autism research. I'm Jacob Rogan. In this episode of Spectrum Stories, we're talking about regression. For decades, experts distinguished between two developmental trajectories in autism. In one, which was believed to be more common, children show signs of autism early in life. In the other, children initially proceed along more familiar lines, exhibiting typical social skills and communication. Then, sometimes in a flash, those capacities all but disappear, generally before the child turns three. This abrupt loss is known as regression. The experience of a sudden regression can be devastating for parents. One day, you have a toddler who's vocal, who looks you in the eye, who literally reaches out to you. And then, just like that, everything changes. For this episode, we spoke with Nicole, whose son James underwent one of those classic sudden regressions. Nicole asked that we not use her last name in the interest of her son's privacy. James was not just hitting milestones. He really was surpassing them. was quite verbal, social, eye contact, really just a happy, happy kid. And, you know, even my doctor at 18 months, we were sent on our way. Everything looked great. Nicole says that there may have been a few warning signs. Not long after he turned 18 months old, James's formally steady process of language acquisition seemed to stop. His vocabulary just plateaued. Soon after that, his parents noticed that he wasn't interacting as much with other children, seemingly preferring to do his own thing. At the time, Nicole says, she didn't make much of it. But then, just before James's second birthday, something more dramatic happened. Right before he turned two, it all sort of like kicked in, like, I mean, it hit us like a Mack truck. Within a matter of a month, the eye contact was going. He was becoming socially anxious in front of, with other people and children. He used no words. And he, um, he started stimming at, you know, the, the, I, I called them ticks. Stimming is a self-stimulatory repetitive behavior, such as rocking or, or hand flapping. Uh, for Nicole and her husband, there was one small comfort. Others agreed that James had changed. And suddenly, it wasn't just that his parents had missed something, that love had blinded them to the early stages of James's condition. You know, the one thing that I think was validating to myself and my husband was that, you know, when we told people about what was happening with James, they were sort of as shocked as we were, which actually made us feel better in a way because the 180 that James did, the turnaround, was not just seen by us. I mean, people were were stunned and shocked as to what was happening. And, you know, we thought, oh, maybe we just had our parent love goggles on and we missed this or we missed that. But, you know, when when your doctor, your son's doctor, your friends, your family, people that have known your son since really birth go, I, I'm stunned. I, I can't believe it. Then we knew we were confident that, you know, this was something that just, I mean, turned around quite rapidly. Until recently, experiences like those of Nicole and her son were thought to be relatively rare. Depending on whom you asked, Somewhere between 15 and 40% of children with autism met the criteria for the regressive form of it. But as journalist David Dobbs reports in a feature for Spectrum this month, some researchers have begun to challenge the rigid divide between those two types. There are two key components to their changing understanding of the once standard regression-non-regression binary. First, many researchers now believe that regression is a gradual process, 
even when there appears to be a sudden shift. Second, it's starting to look like regression may be much more common than previously thought, perhaps even universal. Catherine Lord, a psychologist and autism researcher at Weill Cornell Medicine, is one of those who initially believed in the simple dichotomy, but who has come to question its validity. We used to think about it as this very clear thing, which some kids were always autistic, and some kids had these massive regressions, which is still true, um, but that there was this very clear difference. And when we look closely, it's not. It's much more subtle. I think what has become apparent is that the when it emerges and how it emerges is really variable, and it involves both variability in how many skills kids get before the autism shows up, and then what they lose, and how fast they lose it. For Lord and other researchers, that shift of opinion came out of the careful observation of at-risk children. Sally Ozanoff of the University of California Davis Mind Institute, for example, says that her understanding began to change as she conducted what are called prospective studies. In a prospective study, you follow infants who were at risk for a condition over time, from before the phenomenon should be evident to after it is. In the case of autism, that means you're checking in with them at regular intervals from birth to the age of three. Here's Ozanoff. The majority of the children with autism, I think it was 86%, showed normal levels of the social communication behaviors when they were little, like six to nine months. And then over time, those behaviors dropped in frequency so that their social communication behaviors were very low um, by the time they were age three. And the way the curve is plotted, um, you can see that it's basically just this downward line. And so they're dropping in the frequency of the social communication skills. Remember, previous estimates held that somewhere between 60 and 85% of children with autism exhibited the early onset version of the condition. Ozanoff's research, by contrast, suggests that 86% of children show autism behaviors after exhibiting typical social and linguistic development. Other studies conducted by Ozanoff and her colleagues including some that involved studying home videos of children's early years, have led to similar conclusions. Their findings don't mean that every child with autism regresses, but for a researcher like Ozanoff, trained on the strict binary between regression and early onset, this information still came as a shock. I mean, I always believed it. I had no reason not to. I applied for multiple grants thinking that there was a dichotomous way to classify onset. Among other things, this growing consensus may change how we think about and study the causes of autism. If there are, in fact, two distinct onset types, there may be two distinct etiologies. Because research hasn't borne that out, it's helpful to realize that regression may be a part of all autism, rather than a separate type of autism. There's an important angle to that realization. As Catherine Lord explains, the idea that some children regress suddenly and without warning may have inadvertently fed pseudoscientific speculation. Especially when we first began to talk about this, many people were using dramatic regressions as a reason to be very concerned about things like vaccinations or some kind of very specific toxic event. So I think that this is a real response to that, that whatever's going on, it's not a single toxic event that happens at two, you know, or even at 18 months. There's something that's 
happening long before that. And certainly that's supported by the genetic data and all the neuropathological studies that suggest something starting really even in fetal development. This emerging paradigm shift is important for other reasons, too. Key among them may be that it gives us a better vantage on other developmental trajectories, those that fall somewhere between early onset and sudden regression. That's very much the case for another parent, a woman named Sarah, who also asked that we not use her last name here. Her son, Sam, began showing signs of autism shortly after he turned two, but Sarah didn't see the archetypal version of regression where a child is talking one day, only to fall silent the next. Here's how Sarah tells it. Our regression story was a little bit different than you typically hear in autism, where our little guy didn't lose language. Um, In fact, his language over his regression period really improved and tended to get better and just get better and better. So, you know, we just sort of didn't see the other more subtle types of regression that was happening in him where he um, stopped looking at us as much. His facial expressions became more flat and less varied. He wasn't using gestures. He wasn't integrating all of his social and communication behaviors together anymore. Ultimately, he would show other unusual behaviors, obsessively lining up objects and actively avoiding interaction with other children, for example. Further complicating the story, though, is that Sarah, too, is an autism researcher. She actually works with Catherine Lord. Today, she wonders whether that made it harder for her to recognize her son's condition. I don't know... I don't know if it helped or hurt me, actually. You know, seeing him early on, I think I kept saying, you know, because I'm so involved in ASD that I I think there was this tendency for me and my friends who are also in this field to think, no, this can't be happening. You know, I think there was this sense of like, um, that, you know, what are the odds of this that I would study this my whole life and then and then my child would have autism spectrum disorder. Like so many other parents, though, She's found herself thinking back on incidents and experiences from before her son's diagnosis, even if they didn't strike her as strange at the time. One of them played out during the holiday season last year, when Sam was around 26 months old, just after his younger brother was born. The first thing I noticed was he became really interested in Polar Express. So, you know, it's always on TV during that time, and we had just brought home Welcome to New Baby, so... Um, we were really excited to celebrate this sort of holiday season. And he really enjoyed acting out scenes from Polar Express, even when the movie wasn't on. So we live close to New York City, and he would find Metro North tickets in my purse, and he would pull them out and do the whole I lost my ticket scene over and over, um, which was adorable. I left my ticket right here on the seat. But it's gone. You mean you have lost your ticket? She didn't lose her ticket. I did. Soon after, Sarah's son was scripting was other scenes, to too. And that's when the lining up of objects began to creep into his repertoire. At the time, though, Sarah didn't put much stock in any of it. After all, typical toddlers can engage in those same behaviors. But when Sam was around 30 months old, the warning signs had become more difficult to ignore. I took him to a birthday party to play with kids his age who he had seen before and played with before. And during that party, he um, found all the vehicles that were there available for kids to play with and then fiercely defended them. He lined them up and then um, would sort of growl at other kids who came near him to play with them and, and tell them, no, I don't want to play with you. And he would say to me, you know, mommy, I want to find the vehicles. And 
and then um, at that party, also some of the other parents who were very familiar with my child even said to me, you know, especially later looking back, they said, you know, yeah, he was he was different then, and they couldn't really put their finger on how he was different. And I, you know, I was pretty upset coming home from that party. I remember, you know, in the car on the way home, just thinking to myself, something has happened. So fairly soon after that, um, I got the ball rolling to get him evaluated, and they um, confirmed he had autism spectrum disorder. And at that time, you know, I was able to look back to just in talking to the practitioners who looked at him, um, thinking about how he was different because I had to sort of explain that. And I was, I had the benefit of the fact that we were home over the holiday season and you do, and you have a new baby. So you take a lot of pictures and a lot of videos, you can imagine. So I was able to really look back at that time and see, oh yeah, you know, this all happened over a very short period of time. I would say at least, you know, at the most 12 weeks. He had eye contact, he had facial expression, he had all those things that I was now not seeing. Through it all, though, Sam remained as vocal as ever. It was indisputable that he had regressed, but he had done so in his own way. I think it's just definitely important to remember that this can happen in other ways, not just language, because his language did keep getting better and better. I was keeping track of his language at the time um, from his two-year-old pediatrician appointment until, you know, now he's almost three. And I don't think there was a language regression at all. I think it was mostly related to um, other social behavior that he was doing. One lesson of these stories may be that there's no one absolute sign of regression. It can take many shapes and follow many pathways. That possibility might seem frightening to some, but Osanoff argues that it's a positive development in our understanding of autism. It's good news to know that because it gives us this whole protracted period where we could catch it and do something about it, right? I mean, if you were able to to find a child who is in the middle of a regression versus has already gone through it and has autism, um, you might be able to pull them back or you might be able to catch them before all the signs are there and you have fewer behaviors to treat or fewer symptoms to treat. That hopeful reading is borne out by real examples. Sarah says that her son Sam, for example, has already begun to recover some of the skills that he had lost after his regression began. Nicole also draws some hope from the possibility. You know, we're still at the start of this now. He just turned two. We're just at sort of the beginning of his diagnosis. And, you know, what we've heard from many specialists and and, and people who have gone through this is that, you know, one of the good things is that, you know, we're we're getting this at an early age as opposed to three or four. Um, But I think the reason why we've gotten this so early is because James's symptoms were not subtle. You know, I've talked to many parents who at three or four still kind of weren't sure what to make of things here and there. With James, it came on so quickly, there was almost no doubt in anyone's mind. Importantly, though, the growing consensus that many regressions may have a more gradual trajectory doesn't mean that parents need to live in a state of constant fear. Lord, for one, advocates an attentive but still calmly moderated approach. I mean, what we don't want to do is we don't want to make parents you know, even more nervous wrecks than they already are (laughs) in terms of watching very small kids. And there is day-to-day variation, you know, in small children. But I think that just to be conscious that if a child who's been talking goes for a week and doesn't say anything, you know, then, I mean, I think the first thing I would do is ask the people around you, does this child look different? You know, get, get information from your 
relatives or your friends or get, get input from other people and, and have them listen to you. Don't, don't just automatically reassure you, you know, or go back to your pediatrician and see. Um, but I, I think we don't want to make people extraordinarily anxious. But I think, you know, what we see in these kids is this process, again, of, of something changes a little bit. And it's usually little bits and pieces. As researchers like Lord and Osinoff know all too well, none of this can assuage the pain of parents whose children have already undergone a regression. Lord, for example, says that practitioners have to remember that there might be an element of PTSD, of post-traumatic stress disorder, for many families. I don't want to downplay how hard it is for families when a child does learn skills, because I think that, you know, they sound like tiny skills, but they, you know, again, having a word or two or a child who points, you know, some of the little things children do, a child who gives you, you know, feeds you their Cheerios um, and who stops doing that. I mean, that is, you know, when that happens, initially, I think families think it's not a big deal. And then when it's gone, it is, it does, um, you know, when a family realizes that's gone and they can't get it back. It is, it is quite difficult. No one that I spoke to knows this better than Nicole. Even as she works to find treatment and care for James, she's haunted by memories of the child he was and sometimes seems to no longer be. She watches old videos of him almost nightly, remembering the ways he spoke and the ways he looked at her. You feel almost like you had this person here. You had this being and they're gone. And unfortunately, the, the problem with that thinking is that you almost have to forget about that person that was here. You know, in a mourning process, it's tricky because in a mourning process, you don't typically then have to, you know, see the person. And you, you know what I'm saying? You, so it's like you, you, have a, you have this little being who looks exactly like your child, you know, is, is every bit your kid. But then, in a sense, you remember that there was, there's a, there was an element missing that was there. And you just hope you sort of get that back. This was an episode of Spectrum Stories, the podcast for Spectrum, the leading source for news and expert opinion on autism research. To read more on new developments in the study of regression, read David Dobbs' article, Rethinking Regression in Autism, available at spectrumnews.org. Audio for this episode was edited by Mickey Capper. I'm Jacob Brogan. <laughs>